Welcome to another brand new episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And, of course, before we get into this week's episode, as usual, I would love to shout out my Patreon supporters, Rob, Frankie, Emily, Greg, and Case. If you would like to get a shout out at the top of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash stormageddon. There are a bunch of different tiered rewards at a variety of levels, um, but if you can't do that, a like, a subscribe, a rating, a review, all of that helps as well. I am so excited for you to hear this episode, as I am excited almost every episode, but this one is particularly special because my guest is the incredible Evan Ross Katz, who I very recently started working together with to bring to life season two of Shut Up Evan, his incredible interview podcast. I'm so excited to be producing the show and working on the show with Evan and even being a voice on the episodes. It's been so exciting and so refreshing. And while this whole interview is really great and we talk a lot about Evan's history and how he got into writing and how he got into podcasting, I'm also just really excited to have him on because I've admired him for a while and I'm really excited to get to talk about this podcast that I've joined for the second season. So enough from me. Let's dive right in. Here is my incredible interview with the brilliant, handsome, and charming Evan Ross Um, so let's let's start from the beginning. Uh, Evan Ross Katz, I am so excited to have you on Autographs. Um, this is a pleasure to flip the script on you, as typically I am the producer for your incredible show, Shut Up Evan, where you are the host. Um, so first of all, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. My today. pleasure. I do want to correct you and say it is our show. You tend to call it my show. It is our <laughs> show. But yes, but thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm sure this comes to shock. Uh, as a shock to you, being an artist of a kind and experiencing with artists that someone being like put, putting themselves down and not wanting to take credit, that must be completely unfamiliar. <laughs> yes, you yeah, must not never, see that never. <laughs> um, so first, let's talk about our show, Shut Up Evan, which I came on for season two. Um, the first thing I really want to ask about, because a lot of people, like when it came back, people were insanely excited and had missed it greatly. It had been on hiatus for a little bit, you know, while you ramped up for season two. I want to talk. go back to the beginning of Shut Up Evan. Where did the idea for Shut Up Evan come from and the origins of the podcast? Because for those who don't know, it's a chat show, not unlike Autographs, where Evan and uh, the, the, I love your tagline for the show, which is about gay shit and pop culture, which is like, it just gets to the point. But where did the idea for the show come from? What inspired you to start it? So it's an interesting... Uh kind of roundabout trajectory that happened. So basically I was working for a company at the time called Mike.com, um, which I like to say does not exist anymore, but it does exist. But the version of the website that I worked for does not. And so for all intents and purposes, okay. and actually LOL for season one, we used to call it sort because Alden, my former producer and I both came from Mike and we used to call it like the site that shall not be named. Um, but so <laughs> we, I was working at Mike at the time I was the senior style editor and this was at the very beginning of Facebook Live. And Mike signed a deal with Facebook Live that required us to do like X amount of hours on Facebook Live per week. And so every vertical at Mike was assigned one hour a week. And you could do whatever you wanted. You just had to fill that hour. And as my writers, I had two writers at the time under me and neither of them wanted to, to appear on camera. And I was not like overly keen to appear on camera. I just was sort of, I didn't think a lot of people were gonna be watching it and I'm very comfortable. It's hard to make me feel uncomfortable. So I was like, okay, mm -hmm. we'll do this. And so I had to sort of generate, okay, well, what am I gonna do for an hour? And so in the beginning, it was like a lot of inviting friends of mine to come in and shoot the shit. And then slowly I started to be, I remember I invited Dorinda, who's one of the more popular Real Housewives of New York. I invited her to come on and we did that. And like that kind of generated some traction. And so I was like, oh, let me invite Luann, another one of the Real Housewives. And so that generated some traction. But things really like took off when I invited Trixie and Katya to come and do an interview um, for, we kind of had, at that point, the videos had started to sort of take off and they were becoming more produced. Mike was putting more resources behind them. I was like filming like uh, segments for promoting Facebook Live at that point. Um, and basically that Trixie Kotze interview just blew up in large part because it's 
insane, but also after the fact, months and months after the fact, we learned that, and this is known, so I'm not giving any information away that the the person would not want, but uh, Katya was in a drug-induced state at the time of our interview. and so there's a chaoticness about the interview that I think is um, just you kind of can't look away. It's not like a car crash, nothing like bad happens in the interview. It's just a really wild interview. So anyway, long story made medium length that it was just basically from those mic interviews. And then like we kind of just kept being able to book bigger and bigger people. And I got more and more comfortable doing it. Everyone was laid off of mic. I was kind of doing my freelance writing and I just sort of missed doing the interviews and I had a lot of people asking me about them. And so we just were sort of like, I called Alden up because we had been working together. He was my producer on those videos. And we were like, let's just kind of do this and, you know, hit record and see what happens. I knew nothing about podcasts. I can't say I know a ton more now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was basically, the idea was just sort of to continue the work that we were doing but I just understood that like the video production aspect of what we were doing at Mike was incredibly expensive. And in my mind, uh, podcasts would be way cheaper and easier. Um, can't confirm if that's true. Um, but so yeah, that, it was basically born as like a quote unquote spinoff of sorts of the work we were doing at Mike. That's really cool. And did you ever fancy yourself an interviewer? Like, is that a thing that you wanted to do, be a presenter or be an interviewer? No, but I am just a very curious person by nature. And I, it's the the one thing I can always kind of think of back to like my early days of like writing is it's like when I had to interview someone for like a story and it wouldn't necessarily be like a profile, but someone included in a larger story, like generating the questions was always so easy. And even now with my current job, sometimes we'll be like doing talent asks and we'll have to like generate a list of questions and Questions just kind of come naturally to me. And over time, I sort of, I wanted to finesse sort of like what an Evan Ross Katz question would be. And so I, and and so I just kind of, that became for me about doing a lot of research and knowing my subject better than they knew themselves in a sense. And um, I think I just kind of, there were a couple of moments early on, especially with those mic interviews when I had moments where I felt like I was getting, we were going somewhere. It felt like I felt a kinetic energy in an interview and it wasn't necessarily, I don't, I wouldn't say I am like good at interview, but I will say, I think people in interview settings tend to surrender to me easily. And that's not, and I, I say that very carefully to say that's not a compliment to myself because, but I just find that for whatever reason, I think if I were to look at it from the outside, I think people have an easy time talking. Even that makes me uncomfortable to say because I feel like there's a little bit of praise in that. I, I just fa- I found that people <laughs> liked talking to me. Well, I will praise you since you don't want to do it yourself. And in my experience with the interviews I've sat on, in on, which there have been f- uh, four of the five episodes we've recorded already, spoilers, um, coming for, uh, for, for Shut Up Evan, but you are incredibly easy to talk to you give this air of comfort and i think even in the moments when you're asking harder questions because you want to get to the bottom of something or see if you can give voice to something that maybe someone couldn't say somewhere else there's still a comfort in it like i you always tell the guests what i told you before we started recording like if there's anything you need cut or whatever let me know and like it has come up but for the most part in the at least during the interview no one's gone in the interview oh shit i didn't want to say that like i think there's just this comfortability with talking to you and i think it comes from you knowing first of all knowing your subject so well like your show is very conversational but you still create sheets of questions that you want to ask and you don't necessarily ask them all but you have this kind of layout of what you are interested in but you also do deep dives on those uh, personalities, those people, because you want to ask questions that they haven't really asked before. Like what's aired by the time people will hear this, our first episode of the new season with Olivia Wilde, which really great is both you and I asked a lot of questions that I don't think she heard mm-hmm. a lot. Like, of course we talked about book smart. And of course we talked about her early days of acting, but like I asked her about the red hot chili peppers. You asked her very specific things about things she's posted on her Instagram or in other places. And I think that's what really engages 
someone you're interviewing is that you really care about the conversation. Yeah, and I think also like, so I, can I spoil an episode that's coming up? I mean, I don't care. It's your show. Okay. It's, it's our show, but it's up to you. <laughs> okay, so we have an episode coming up. Uh, our next guest is Chloe Feynman, who's one of the stars of SNL. And she's really known for her impressions, both on SNL and on Instagram. And as I was gearing up to do it, I was I always try and go to the bottom of a person's Instagram page. That to me is so important. I do that with anyone I interview. Um, it's much, it depends on, I just feel like you can't get to the bottom of someone's Twitter, but like with Instagram, you really can see the beginning. And anyway, I ended up finding a lot of these old impressions that Chloe did before she was Chloe Feynman of today, in which yeah. anything she posts has a built-in virality to it. And being able to ask Chloe questions about an impression that she did in 2017, which is not that long ago, but is way before she was famous because she's very new to this sort of fame. Being able to ask about that, I saw, it's like a moment where it's like she, I could see her understanding the fact that I, that, that I knew her, that I had taken yeah. the time to get to know her on a deeper level. And I think that that establishes something where it's like, you took the time to get to know, you took the time to, to give to me, so I will give, it, give to you in exchange. And that's, that's the environment I try to foster. Sure. Um, have there been any interviews that you did in the first season, since I wasn't around for those, that didn't go the way you had planned, or maybe someone had kind of pushed back in a way that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I mean, we so we shot the pilot. Um, so in May 2019 with Trixie Mattel. And so Trixie is an old friend of mine. And I figured we had done that mic interview together and that mic interview had blown up. And I was like, she is the perfect first guest. And at that point, I didn't quite know what Shut Up Evan was going to be. And so we we filmed, we rented a studio. She came in. It was so nice of her to take the time. And when I got the episode back, I just felt like I was not a presence in the episode at all. You didn't get to know me in any way. I felt very anonymous to me. And I can be a difficult critic of myself, but I also, especially now, it's like, I know when I like what I do. And like, right. I do have those moments quite a bit. Um, and this had none of them. And I also felt like, and this is something I kind of still think about today. It felt like Trixie had done so many interviews that she had finessed the art of interview. Yeah. And that is very uninteresting to me. And so as much as I tried to go deeper or find questions she hadn't been asked, I just felt like she was such a conversationalist. And I know usually it would be like, oh, isn't that a great thing? It just, it didn't jive with my vision for the show. And I had such a feeling about it that I decided to can it um, entirely and reshoot the pilot months later. But that's an interview and she didn't do anything wrong. Right. Like it's not anything like that whatsoever. But one of my takeaways from that interview, I don't like interviewing someone when they're having a moment. Mm. And so even I would say borderline with our Shay interview, Yeah. because it's like Shay is in the middle of being interviewed quite a bit because they just won Drag Race. They yeah. have to do a lot of interviews. Whereas we have an interview coming up with Jimbo and we did that interview like about a month after he had had his final episode of Drag Race and like the sort of like the Jimbo renaissance, if you will, had sort of, uh, it had died down a bit. And that interview, I'm so, and I was gonna do that one while he was still on the show. And I'm so glad I waited and my, and my takeaway. And, and again, why I think the Olivia interview is so good because it's like, she's not in a press cycle right now. Right. She's not flexing that muscle and I actually find that I can do a lot better work when I feel like they're not as um in it you know yeah I totally get that I feel like um especially with and I hate the term content creation whatever the f that means you have to be happy with it ultimately if you're not happy with what you're putting out or you're not interested why would anyone else be interested and i've had some interviews especially in the early days of this show when i was just trying to grab anybody um to, and like the converse i listen back to the conversation i'm like well this isn't great but i need an episode so i'll put it out whereas now i wouldn't do that thankfully i've had a ton of incredible guests and you know i tend to reach out now just to the people i know i want to talk to but I think it's so important to be so aware of the kind of thing you're making and that you enjoy it to some degree 
Because if you don't, why would someone else? Yeah. And I also feel like I, the one thing I trust, like, very much and always kind of have is I trust my taste. Yeah. Um, and so when it's something is sort of like not up to snuff with my taste, I, you know, I'll get a second and a third opinion. I'm not saying like I might, you know, I, I, you know, but I, <laughs> I do when I get that initial instinct where something is off, I, I kind of, I, I know it. And I, and with that one, I just was like, this is not the pilot. And I feel like the pilot's such an important episode. So that's one instance, but otherwise I've had interviews that, um, are not like, you know, I think some are more electric than others. Yeah. Um, and I definitely have ones that I feel like go to a place that I'm really proud of. And when I say I'm proud of it, it's like I'm proud of facilitating an environment in which the guests felt so free to to share. I think the one that comes to mind, I realize I'm answering the opposite of your question. But, <laughs> it's fine. Um, so Charisma Carpenter, who's one of the original cast members from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, came on the show and there was like a question, we had a phone call the, the night before the interview um, in which she kind of mentioned some things that she didn't want to talk about. And I was like, and I had told her, I was like, tell me this so I know. But there was one sort of like thing hanging over my head and, and she did not include this on the June Mask list. And it was kind of like, there are all these rumors about her being fired from Angel, which is the spinoff series of, of Buffy, her being fired from Angel for being pregnant. And I was like, I really wanted to have that conversation because it's always bothered me as, as a viewer of the show. And I felt like not only did she answer the question, but it just felt like the unresolved, I'm going to call it anger, but mm -hmm. that's just my perception. The unresolved anger it came out in that interview in a way that I found really like remarkably vulnerable. And that is like, when I think of like interviews that I'm really, really proud of, I'm really proud of that, but I'm also grateful for charisma for coming in with such an open heart and mm -hmm. like allowing that story to be told. And, um, and yeah, that, that's one that really comes to mind that I'm especially proud of. Well, it's funny you mentioned that one because um, when we, when I first got, uh, so we were connected through a mutual friend, Abu Zafar, who I love. Lore Pottery love. Podcast Network is phenomenal. Um, my podcast network that I'm on is actually going to pair up with Lore Party in November to do some special stuff for Cyberpunk. But Abu is great, and he connected us. And when we, when I first heard your name, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you guys should chat." I think you you'd hit it off, which he was absolutely right, and we owe him dearly for that. Um, True. The first episode I listened to was the Charisma Carpenter episode because I'm a longtime Buffy and Angel fan. And when I saw that you had interviewed her, I was like, oh, like to me, like I still get starstruck by folks like her. It's funny, bigger Same. celebrities don't always do that to me, but the ones from like cult TV shows or like are at a certain level, like I lose my mind over and she's one of them. She's just phenomenal. And I listened to that interview first of all your interviews and I was just like, this is unbelievable it's incredible and and i agree with you i think there's an electricity in that conversation that you couldn't have possibly predicted like you know who she is and you know she's a lovely person and and i've seen her on chat shows but there was there was some kind of unidentifiable electricity in that interview that like is just almost hard to explain yeah i'm yeah i i concur <laughs> um so obviously you've been writing for a long time you were a writer before you were a podcaster was did you go to school for writing is like journalism and writing a thing you've always been destined to do or is it just something you kind of like most people fell face first into yeah no i i i don't think i i, I don't think i fell i think i tripped <laughs> um but uh yeah no i went to theater school i went to new york university um i pursued a degree in theater directing and then i think like around i've never really jived with theater people and i say that with the understanding that like i am a theater person right. so i'm not saying this with any sort of elitist mentality because i am one of the people that i say i don't quite um, so my psychiatrist can, can delve into that. Um, but so I think it was around like my junior year when I kind of saw so much theater being made and so little theater being consumed that something felt off to me in terms of making this like a sustainable career path. And I also was just feeling like th there weren't like stories I wanted to tell in the theater space because the kind of per theater felt so exclusionary just in terms of like the attendees. And I've always been so interested. I love talking to people outside of my area of interest. One of my biggest passions is like 
talking to people that think that they don't care about fashion and helping right. show them that they care. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, so I, I, around my senior year, I was like, I made the decision after, you know, shelling out the 200,000 plus dollars for New York University to not pursue the degree that I had shuttled that money for. <laughs> my parents were thrilled. And um, I decided to go into fashion. I, I had a, I was, my friend group was largely consumed of people within the fashion industry. And what I always, always say is all of like the stereotypes of the fashion industry, like the devil wears product of it all are so antithetical to the fashion industry that I have experienced over the last decade. Sure. And I didn't know a ton about fashion, but I knew and trusted my taste. And so I, that, and I think I had a sense of humor that the, it's not that fashion writing is humorless, but it's fashion writing in general, not always, uh, tends to take itself rather seriously and tends to right. view the industry rather seriously. And I liked, I liked using my voice to poke fun at a lot of the shortcomings and problematic aspects of the fashion industry such as the lack of models of color, the lack of plus size models, the models of differently abled people. I thought that there was a way to both like praise a runway show that I loved the fashions on while also reading them for not including more diverse models on the runway. I thought you could do both at once. Right. I didn't think it was like so binary as like this brand, it's like this happened recently with the Versace runway because um, they have three plus size models and people were like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I was like, that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> but also those three plus size looks like work. I loved yeah. all three of them. So anyway, um, I kind of uh, started pursuing fashion and I started doing a lot of fashion writing. And then the pop culture writing, I think, came through fashion outlets wanting me to cover pop culture more because pop culture gets more clicks right. than fashion. And I also was just someone who I just like I was I like to like I just I'm I'm I've always been a consumer of, of, of culture, both popular and and what's like the kind of culture I'm interested. In, it's not like it's 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 not zeitgeisty pop culture, but it's within pop culture, but sometimes like in the annals of pop culture, right. if you will. And um, I think that the internet, you know, the internet used to be a little more wild westy, but it was easier to, it was easier to um, have a unique voice because there wasn't just as much competition. And so I think I came up at a very lucky time. I started writing on the internet around 2012, 2013. Um, and, I found mild success and Sam Lansky, who is the West Coast editor of Time Magazine, bless him, gave me one of my <laughs> first big writing gigs. And what he told me at the time, and I always tell this to writers now, it's like, Sam told me it takes three writing gigs. You need to get three, your byline on three different publications, and right. then you'll be set. And so I did, I wrote for free for the Huffington Post, as a lot of writers of my generation did. And then I wrote for a fashion magazine, a, a British fashion magazine called Essential Ohm. And then I did um, recapping of the final season of Jersey Shore for a website called Wet Paint. Nice. And I just remember, I was like, okay, this is the trifecta. I've made it. <laughs> and, you know, the rest is uh, some, somewhat history. Somewhat history. Yeah. I think it's always funny to me uh, being married to an actress and having a lot of friends both in theater and film and music. It's like people, people outside any artistic industry are like, oh, overnight success. Everyone just blows up. And it's like... No, that's not how it works. And like even now with podcasting, like I <laughs> I got unreasonably mad. I think it was last year, this year. I don't know. Time is a lake at this point. It doesn't make any sense anymore. But when Conan launched his new podcast, Conan Needs a Friend, which I love. I'm a fan of Conan. He was on the cover of some magazine, not even Rich, going, you know, essentially saying that Conan invented podcasting. Like he made podcasting big. And I was like, excuse me, I've been doing this for almost a decade what are you talking about? He made his podcast big because he had an audience already. He stepped into an existing audience, but podcasting has been around a long time and it just drove me a little nutty, even though it was not even Conan's fault because he didn't write the article, but it was just like, yes, just because a celebrity steps into a thing and it becomes huge doesn't mean they made it huge. It's been Absolutely. around. Yeah. 
And, I remember that article. Yeah. It, and, and like, again, it wasn't Conan's fault. He probably had no idea. No. And there's a version of that article, or there's a version of that same sort of story. I believe it was 2016 when some publication did a headline saying Kylie Jenner, Kylie Jenner invented wigs um, was the headline. And I remember similarly, it was like, no, she didn't. Nope. She did not. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about pop culture because you, some, I mean, okay. So for one, if you are listening to this now and you are familiar with Evan, you already know this, but for my listeners who may not, you might have a little bit of an infatuation with Sarah Michelle Geller. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious where that stems from because like we all, we all have legends that we stand. There's always that one person that no matter what, reasonably you will love their work for me that person for the longest time has been Hugh Jackman for absolutely no reason other than a he's an incredible singer b he is very attractive and c he played my favorite comic book character Wolverine for quite a long time and so like I followed him to everything I watched his live tours I saw him in the boy from Oz like the only kid in the line to get an autographed copy of the CD the soundtrack for boy from Oz wearing an X-Men t-shirt Whereas everyone else was there because they, they were musical theater fans. And I was like, I loved the musical, but I also just loved him. Um, so I get the sense that you followed Sarah through her career. What is it that really drew you to her? Um, It's so complicated. I <laughs> And it's complicated in that, like, I both know exactly what it is. And then at the same time, I'm kind of like, there's just something about her. Um, I remember, okay, like my earliest memory of Sarah Michelle Gellar was, it was the sixth episode of the second season of Buffy. I had no idea who she was. I was watching something in my parents' bedroom, flipping through the channels on a commercial, and came across Buffy and I had to what? So I would have been like nine, I wanna say. And immediately I saw these vampires and my mother was like, turn that off. <laughs> and I remember running into the basement and putting um, the episode on and finishing it. And I remember that became my, at this point, yeah. No, this was Monday at 9 p.m. because the show would transition to Tuesday at 8 p.m. a few weeks later. But it began Monday at 9 p.m. Every Monday at 9, I would go down there. And I became really infatuated with the character of Buffy. I This was like kind of before I was like bullied, bullied, but this was the beginnings of like being criticized for being effeminate. And I remember thinking, wow, like Sarah Michelle Gellar is like the paradigm of femininity. She's like this female butt kicker. And so I think as someone who was being labeled feminine, that became sort of like the the desire. Well, if I'm going to be feminine, I want to be the best version of feminine. And that's Sarah Michelle Gellar. And I obviously like over time fell in love with the show, but I've always said like, I am, I am a Sarah Michelle Gellar fan way before I am a Buffy fan because for every episode, like for, I would say of the 144 episodes of Buffy, there are 100 that I love and 44 that I would never want to watch again. That's and fair. that ratio is very, that that's how I see it. And so like, I'm doing a rewatch with my boyfriend right now. And like, there's just, we're about to watch the season four episode for anyone that knows the show where the wild things are. And I'm like putting it off just because uh, it's like, yeah. like, just a slog. Anyway, so I became really into her film work at the time, which in the beginning was like Scream 2. I know you did last summer, Cruel Intentions. Um, and I, I, I don't know like how it, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. It became like my bar mitzvah was Sarah Michelle Gellar themed. I had two Japanese stand-up dolls at my bar mitzvah. I still have both of them now. <laughs> Amazing. And then like life sort of happens in a funny way. And we first cross paths. It's too long of a story to really get into over, <laughs> over email in 2015. I did a favor for her through a mutual friend and she sent me a thank you email. And that was like my world stopped, but we <laughs> met for the first time in 2017. Um, I was invited by the team at Watch What Happens Live to attend a taping of Watch What Happens Live that she was going to be at. And so I was just, and this was right before my birthday and I was gonna be in the same room as her. And I remember <laughs> when she walked in the room and like just everything stops. It's a very yeah. small room. And I, they put me in the very front row. There's two chairs. They're, they're chairs from the Oprah Winfrey show that Andy Cohen has in his studio. And they put me and my best friend, Kevin, in those chairs. And so it goes to commercial break. 
I'm hyperventilating. I have my camera up. I'm uh-huh. trying to get in all the footage. And Andy turns to me and he goes, have you met her? And I was like, no, but I don't want to. And I and that was like my thing. It's yeah, just yeah. like, don't meet your hero. Of course. Absolutely. And he grabs me at that point and he brings me over to her. And that's the first time we met. Um, we've met subsequently several times since I've interviewed her for Oprah Magazine. Um, she sends me a birthday card every every April 10th for my birthday. I help her with her Instagram sometimes. We have this very funny, I am in her phone. Um, <laughs> we have a funny, it's not a friendship per se, but I will say, I think that she finds me very funny and it's the it if nothing else there's a version of this story in which she finds me psychotic or like doesn't really get it (laughs) but i will say to my understanding i could be totally wrong but like i will never forget when i walked into the hotel room for the oprah interview this was 2019 um the first thing she said was like oh my god you have as long until the um my security comes up to escort you out to like finish the interview (laughs) just because like she gets the fact that it's an insane obsession but she finds it funny and yeah but i mean it's just kind of like she is the thing i i've said this before but it's like before I think of myself as gay, before I think of myself as Jewish, before I think of myself as American, it's like I, she is the thing that has been with me for the longest time that I've identified my personality with. And, you know, nowadays everyone sort of stands this thing and that thing and I'm a this and blah, blah, blah. But like, I am a stan. <laughs> I am, I, this was before the word was popularized. I mean, this was the early iteration, the Eminem, Devin Sawa stan when the term first came out. And when I say that, it's like, I could put it to you this way. If Sarah Michelle Gellar were to come out right now at 6.02, and if there was a Google alert, which I would get, saying Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prince Jr. are getting a divorce, I'm just saying, if that were to happen, oh my God, <laughs> knock on fucking with it, it won't. No, no, if no. that were to happen, I would cancel my plans tonight, and I would go into a state of mourning. <laughs> and like, LOL, like I get the hyperbole in that statement, but it's also like really true. She's just, you pick a person and I'm, I'm loyal as fuck and yeah. she is my person and I will sink with that ship. And I love her. I love her. I love her. And that's amazing. I think that's really sweet and really awesome. And it's funny you met- And creepy. And creepy. It's funny you mentioned Freddie Prince Jr., who I, I've always been a fan of, but I fell in love with very deeply recently because I found out he's the kind of nerd I am. So one of my podcasts called Reignite is about the Mass Effect video game franchise. And he's a big, big nerd. He's played a character in that franchise, in the Dragon Age franchise. And like he's a big Star Wars nerd. Uh, uh, recently, uh, an interview went viral where he was- shitting on all of these rightfully so stupid star wars fans who are like you know this isn't real you can't do it like he set them straight and i love him for it um but it's fun oh, i'm glad he didn't do anything problematic no no okay. he, he's been great so far um one never knows these days but it's that true. said like sarah michelle geller is someone who i was a diehard fan of for a long time and then just kind of disappeared from my periphery as she has just moved on to other things. And it's funny because I remember there was a, you mentioned the other day we were doing an interview that I'm really excited to come out, but you mentioned a show she did with Robin Williams um, I, that I'm blanking on the name of that. It was on the crazy C- ones, the crazy ones that was on CBS, I believe. And like, mm-hmm. I remember I turned on, I tuned into that show for Robin Williams. I've loved that man forever. Uh, I deeply miss his humor and his comedy and his light. But I remember tuning into that show just because I was like, this is going to be whatever it is. It's just big names and I want to see it. I ended up falling in love with that show and it didn't get an extra season. It didn't get uh, extra time. And like, that's the last vivid memory I have of her is watching that show. Yeah, she's just, I, I love her work so much. I look forward to her continued acting career. She has a bunch of projects in the works right now, but I just also, I love, not only do I love her, but I love to love her. And I love how much it's just, I've kind of built, like she is a part of my online identity to the point where it's just people will tap, you know, today, just today, I think there's this like, you know, Instagram nostalgia account that posts like 90s stuff. And they posted a picture of Sarah Michelle Gellar in New York City. And the amount of people that just tagged me in it. And that makes me so happy because it's like, I just, if nothing else, it's like the fact that people think of me when they think of her means that I've done the job, you know, job complete. No, totally. I mean, that's pretty much the same thing that's happened with the Mass Effect franchise, which is supposed to be getting remasters, new games soon, but who knows? Like every time there's any article rumoring that these games are going to get like re-released, I get tagged by like 30 people in it because 
they know I love it and I do something that involves it. And for, for people who don't know you that well, to know you love this thing and want to share it with you, as loopy as it is, I get some sense of camaraderie or like love from that in a way that is really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's also like I'm both really earnest and in on the joke of it. So it's like when I say that I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is on par with Meryl Streep in terms of her acting abilities, I'm not joking at all. And yet I also realize that that statement is really funny. And like, I've always like, I ex I try and exist in the duality of like understanding that like for many people, she is a nostalgia property. She is a, a, a an actress of the late nineties, early aughts that was in the show Buffy and a few films that people love to like remember once upon a time, you know? Um, but I carry that torch and um, it's fun. And I also like the fact that it's, if I were to have chosen someone like an Ariana Grande, I'd have to share her with so many people. <laughs> and it's just Sarah Michelle Gellar is my thing. And I have, you know, I'm not the only fan, don't get me wrong, but like I always say, it's like there's a fan community, we're small but mighty, but it's like, I don't have to share loving her. So like when we get, you know, a Buffy anniversary or any kind of announcement, you know, of any kind, I'm not, I, I feel like it's my moment, you know, yeah, right, it's like, exactly. you know, it's like I'm activated and um, <laughs> I like not having to share that with anybody else because I'm selfish. That's totally fair. Um, so I want to talk about, we talked about your interview process. We talked about interviewing and I know you're someone who has connections and reach, but I'm curious if you could interview anybody on Shut Up Evan, if there is like a pinnacle guest, I mean, obviously Sarah Michelle Gellar is a guest on that show is pinnacle, yeah. but that's the obvious answer, right? Everyone knows mm. that. Yeah. Um, if you could interview anyone on Shut Up Evan in season three, when we get there, who is that person? Who would that dream interview be? Probably Stephen Sondheim. Mm, that's a good one. Because one, I feel like he's someone who just about anyone knows his work and has touched his work in some way, whether meaningfully or just knowing that song from Marriage Story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but also I feel like he's someone who so little is known about his character and how much of his work is influenced by himself, by his, you know, his life experiences. And also I could be wrong about this, but to my understanding, he has never publicly come out of the closet. Like there's, it's always right. been insinuations. And I just would love to learn more about, because I feel like he has created or had a hand in creating so many iconic female characters on stage that my sense is that they are sort of avatars um, for either his own experiences or the dreamscapes that he's created in his head. And I would love to explore that with him and just learn more about the person. And I also feel like going back to what we said earlier, he's just someone that doesn't get interviewed a lot. Yeah. And I always love to speak to people who don't, who are not accustomed to being interviewed or, or like when Sondheim is interviewed, it would be because he has, you know, the Into the Woods movie is coming out or something. Yeah, yeah, it would yeah. never, he seldom would do like a, he's done fresh air a couple of times, but he seldom does an interview that's more, holistic and more exploratory of like the human so that would be who comes to mind that that's a good answer it's funny too because you don't think about the people who aren't interviewed often until you experience an interview of them that you get to hear like my favorite one is there was an interview with gary oldman after he was the commissioner gordon the first time in the nolan batman trilogy and Gary Oldman is a guy who never is himself on camera. He's always got a different voice or a different character. And I remember hearing the interview and they said it's with Gary Oldman. And then I hear this voice and I'm like, I don't know that I've ever heard him speak, not on screen and like didn't recognize the voice in a similar way that like when Christian Bale, who had always had a pretty big career, got really huge as Batman. I had no idea he was British because everything I had seen him in up until that point, he had mostly had an American accent. Um, and so I always find getting those tidbits from interviews of people either you're not familiar with or who don't get interviewed a lot, really fascinating, you know? Totally. And there's also a lot of people who just like, in my opinion, 
interview too often yeah. um, and don't sort of allow a great example of that. Actually, it's been on my mind a lot lately is Mariah Carey, yes. who is currently in a press cycle around her new book. And all I keep thinking is all of the mystique and goodwill that Mariah built over the last 10 years or less, kind of like the how Mariah rehabilitated her image and became sort of like this really popular figure online specifically and sort of bury the memories of sort of like, even from a couple years ago, like all of the lip syncing and just, you know. And anyway, so all the goodwill that she built up, now she is just tweeting up a storm, doing so many interviews, and I can't help but feel like, it's like I need her to go away for a while. Right. And I hate to say that, it's Mariah Carey, I don't want her to go away, but that's an example of feeling like someone lost a lot of power that I think that they intrinsically have because they were just so willing to give it away. Yeah, for sure. Anyone who has listened to Shut Up Evan knows that you are a fan of both gay shit and pop culture. It's in the tagline. Let's talk a little bit about the pop culture you're consuming. Now, I, I know you tease it sometimes on Shut Up Evan. You'll talk about shows that you've been watching. I know you love reality TV. We know you love Buffy and Angel, obviously. Um, but what kind I of- I don't love Angel. <laughs> oh, oh, really? You Do you yeah. like Angel? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's fair. Um, but like, I'll see that take come up every once in a while. That's like, Angel is a better show than Buffy. And I don't even have, I'm not going to, I don't have the energy to like dispel that, but it's just like, LOL that like, oh, we're doing takes today. <laughs> um, but um, is there any pop culture that you're consuming right now during in the quarantine that maybe you might not have or some things that you've fallen in love with? Like, for example, for me, during the quarantine, my spouse and I discovered Schitt's Creek, which had been on for a while by the time we discovered it. And we fell in love with the show. We watched it from beginning to end. We bought the final season so we could watch it right away. Uh, has there any been, been any shows like that that you've just dived into for the first time during quarantine? I mean, you're going to be sick of hearing me talk about it, <laughs> but yes, there is. Um, so I started Survivor in quarantine at the very, actually maybe like a few weeks before quarantine. I want to say in February. Okay. But basically I had, I had been seeing a lot of discourse on Twitter from people whose opinions and tastes I trust. And so like I, I posted a tweet from February being like, okay, if I'm going to do this, and it was my understanding that there were 40 seasons, which seemed <laughs> ambitious. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, can someone give me like a starter season to sort of, you know, give, give me a temperature read early on as to whether or not this is culture for me. And so everyone had a lot of opinions, you know, the internet, crazy. Right. And everyone kept being like, start with Pearl Island season seven. Um, so I did. Very, very into it. And then sort of like, the I have a very historian-like quality about me. So like when it comes to Sarah Michelle Gellar or The View or The Real Housewives, when I like something, I need to have like an encyclopedic knowledge of it because that's sort of like my happy place. Like I just, I like to know, it's like you would, like the hours I spend researching Survivor <laughs> shit now, it's insane. But anyway, so anyway, at that point I was like, okay, I'm into this now. So we got to, let's, you know, reverse engineer and start this 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 journey from the beginning. So we started, we went back to season one. Anyway, I'm now currently watching season 16. Wow. So I've worked, so I've completed 15 seasons and I've just never felt this way about something before. But beyond the show itself, I have discovered this podcast called Survivor Historians. Mm -hmm. And it's about as long as the show itself. They do usually about between like nine to 10 hours on a specific season. Oh, wow. And just learning all of like the behind the scenes stuff. I'm just, I'm both fascinated by like the show, but also like the world of the show. And then also like as someone who, you know, I have like my worlds of things like Drag Race, et cetera. And it's like, I just didn't know there was this world of Survivor and not just the, you know, what happens on the island in those 39 days, that aspect. And I'll give you like an example of a fact that I just learned that I was like really interested in. So I just finished watching Fiji season 14, a remarkably bad season. I would say <laughs> the second worst season that I've watched so far after Thailand, maybe even worse than Thailand. And I noticed the fact that it's a very, very diverse cast. And famously Survivor season 13, Cook Islands, had four tribes of five people each of those four tribes were different ethnicities. And that was became very, very controversial at the time. But right. one of the results of that was that three quarters of the cast was non-white. Yeah. 
And so going into Fiji, it has the same setup, although it's not divided by race, but the cast is comprised of three quarters people of color. And so automatically you're just getting so much more rich storytelling because the tapestry is allowing, it's like the very premise of the show is like 16 people from different walks of life. So it's already such a better season to begin with. Also notably top three are all black individuals. The only time in Survivor history to my knowledge, because I've only seen these 15 seasons. Anyway, I'm listening to the Historians podcast and I learned that Mark Burnett, the creator of Survivor, one of the big reasons why he hates Fiji is because famously there is a 20th, I'm sorry to go to this season. No, it's good. This is great. I love it. But there was a contestant who was supposed to be on the show that dropped out on the boat ride over to the island. You never see her. Her name is Melissa McNulty. Oh, wow. And she was a big-breasted blonde woman, which apparently is Mark Burnett's. Mark Burnett apparently, allegedly, has two favorite kinds of players. Big-breasted blonde women and sort of like alpha, alpha males. Colby Donaldson from Australia being like one of the first prototypes of that. And he famously, Mark Burnett, does not like Fiji, not because it's people of color, but because of the fact that there were, because Melissa dropped out, there were no big blonde women on that season. And you will see in subsequent seasons after Fiji, I'm only two seasons after that, but sort of like... (laughs) an influx of big breasted blonde women. And it's just really interesting looking at that from that, from that vantage point and seeing like Mark Burnett and his little, you know, evil puppeteering of this show. Um, but I know I just love facts like that. Yeah. I, I love like, excuse me, let me be clear. I don't love big breasted blonde women. <laughs> Well, I don't dislike big breasts, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway. Um, but uh, I, I love that aspect of it. So anyway, survivor. <laughs> That's that. See, and what's interesting about a what like I know tons of folks who watch reality TV as it's happening. You know, I had a lot a huge connection to Drag Race even before I watched any of it or met anyone from it because um, I w- was involved in the burlesque scene and the drag scene in New York a bit, and like everybody talked about it for better or worse, everybody talked about it, so I knew it. And like I've watched bits and pieces of reality shows here and there, but it's just not a thing that I've watched deeply. And but I'm always fascinated why people watch it, and even more so when someone like you wants to go back and watch old seasons where there's there's no stakes. You could look up who wins, but there's stakes for you because you're experiencing it for the first time. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, and also I mean, like right now I'm on Micronesia, so I'm on one of the second All Star season, and like I think my sensibility both as a reality television consumer, but also this actually just kind of speaks to like my taste is that like, I love a returning player narrative. I love that. I love a, when a Real Housewife comes back for their second season, that is always like my favorite because it's like, you've had an opportunity to inflect upon the you that you presented on television. And it's like your opportunity to course correct. And that's yeah. why I love an all-stars drag race. I love, again, like a Real Housewives second season, but I, like, what I'm loving about this current season and what I think becomes a big part of the Survivor lore is like the returning player aspect. I just love watching people trying to figure out how to present a better version of their performance of themselves. I, I really like that. That's really interesting. And it's funny too, because like as an actor, you're always evolving what you are and like to say that these people aren't acting to some degree like even us now the way we're talking now is not the way we'd be talking if the mics aren't on like there's a level of performance you know when you're on as they say in show business and so Mm -hmm. i always find that kind of stuff really fascinating and even with talking to people who are celebrities on one scale or another like how will they be? Will they be like I imagine they'll be? Will they be something else? Like you never really know. And I think that part of the reason I got into interviewing, well, selfishly, it was because I wanted to do it. And I had a microphone. I was like, sure, I'll do it. Why not? I didn't know any better to stop myself at the time. But like also now it's like getting to know people on a level that you might not otherwise know them because people will say different things on the microphone than they will off or, you know, off video or whatever. And I think that kind of stuff is really fascinating. Totally. Um, all right, before we wrap up, the, the next thing I wanted to ask is about 2020. So your season is coming back amidst 2020 and everything that's been going on and, you know, what's been going on <laughs> and like it, it, it is hard. There, there are many moments where I, cause I have a podcast that comes out almost every day at this point, which is a little insane. I have to admit even to myself, 
there are moments where I'm like, why? Why am I even bothering? Because of everything that we're all going through as a nation, in the world, and then my own personal strife, which people have heard about on this show and your show, like, how do you keep going in 2020? How do you keep writing, keep making things, especially when so much horrible shit is happening right now and we're the, barreling towards an election with an unknown result and, you know, people are still being treated without equality on so many different levels? Like, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? Well, I thought about that recently when I was looking um, at some of the collections. So right now, we're in fashion month and we're starting to see the first looks from the spring summer 2021 season. And I remember like having a little bit of like apathy when I was first seeing some of the images coming out and just being like, I don't have the, um, the wherewithal to like talk about fashion. I was like, this just isn't the time. But then I got to thinking about it more and I was like, well, a lot of like young creative people are putting their heart and soul, their time, their energy, their money, um, their hearts into making this. So like, yes, there are the Donatella Versace's who could I deal with seeing less? Yes. But there are a lot of people in this moment who are like busting their ass. And I feel like it is incumbent upon people like me not to act as though this moment doesn't exist, but to realize that like, I have a function within the, the, the wheel of it all. I don't I'm a little inarticulate, but like, I have, I have a function here. Right. And it's like, um, I have a platform and I feel like, so that's one thing is like, I feel like I, I want to continue to talk about fashion and I want to find meaningful ways to talk about fashion. And I want to celebrate the good fashion that I'm seeing and fashion is beauty and, and fashion makes people so happy. And fashion is a, 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 an ecosystem where a lot of people like literally rely on fashion to pay their bills. And so I do think that like, do I think that me featuring a brand on my Instagram is going to like make them big? No, but <laughs> not for nothing. I do feel like, you know, anybody that has any kind of following, you are giving exposure to a brand. And, and I would like to believe it's like you build trust in your audience. And so I want to show them the people that I think are doing amazing things. And not everybody has the ability to stop writing, to stop creating, to, um, to back away from this moment. And so that's one aspect of it. And then the second part is like, I like making people laugh and I'm not yeah. a comedian. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I think one thing you would take away from hearing me in an interview setting is like, I'm not laugh out loud funny, but like I had this instance yesterday, this stuff kind of happens to me sometimes where I posted this, I made a little, uh, grid on my Instagram of all of these different Sarah Paulson wigs. Oh, this. I did see this on your Instagram, yeah. And then Kristen Chenoweth commented on it saying, hmm. And then then Sarah Paulson... Oh, sorry. The original post was Sarah Paulson wigs. Yeah. I tagged Sarah Paulson. Anyway, Kristen Chenoweth comments, hmm. Sarah Paulson comments, hmm. I'm like, who? What, what's the tea? So <laughs> I go and I go into the, the Broadway.com archives and I found an interview with Sarah Paulson talking about Kristen Chenoweth rather shadily. And then I learned that Sarah Paulson played a version of Kristen Chenoweth on Studio 60 in the Sunset Strip, which oh. was created by Aaron Sorkin, who used to date Kristen Chenoweth, who had not so, who depicted the character of Kristen Chenoweth in not such a likable way. Anyway, this to say, chronicling, <laughs> like finding that clip, <laughs> clipping it out, posting yeah. it on Instagram, and creating this sort of like, and again, I, 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 was I stirring the pot? Absolutely. But also like the people, the people gave me um, ingredients with which to stir that pot. So, but that is an example of like, I got so many DMs about <laughs> just how gripped people were yeah. by like figuring this out. And it's stuff like that, that like, I think that I can do, I can do, I, I have, for whatever reason, both of those fantastic actresses um, feel they want to play on my comment section, which I'm very grateful for. But that's an example of like, we can have fun. It's not, there's a lot of serious things going on in the world. It's not taking away from that, but like, it's, um, I am, I have a, a usefulness in this situation, which is to try and, I, don't, I wouldn't call it joy. I feel like that's a little like um, self-congratulatory, but it's like, I 
think that I can provide some sort of escapism and BS. And, you know, I just did this interview with like this, the actor in Lady Gaga's new 911 video. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I was going through like my questions and they were all like, you know, what was it like being on set, blah, blah, blah. And then I just was like, you know, have you been to the planet Chromatica? I was like, I just was like, I want to know. And it's like stuff like that. When I was crafting my questions, it's like, that's the best question amongst these questions. And it's like, it's a throwaway question, but it's, I guess I use that as an example of like, I, there's plenty of time to have the serious, serious conversations and we should have them. Um, But I also think there's time for bullshit and frivolity and, meaninglessness and um so i kind of just try and do a little bit of both and i also just i'm not someone who i what i post specifically on my instagram story because that's like kind of my medium of choice is just kind of like i try and just not really think about it too much and and just and have it be an extension of me and also like you know we talk a lot about like the performance of our online self yep i try and like i don't really see my presence on social media as being that just i mean there has to be some distance right but like i don't see it being that different from if you really know me like it it that's me i and that the hyperbole of the language on social yeah it's hyperbole that i use in my everyday lexicon so it's like i just kind of see this as being um an outpouring of all this stuff in my head and if you don't like it and there are plenty of people that don't don't follow along yeah no i agree i think that's what kind of made me see the matrix code, so to speak, to use a dated reference in social media is, first of all, focusing on multiple platforms is almost impossible. But like once I deleted Facebook from my phone and mostly stopped using it and focused on Twitter and just kind of let it be another appendage, I enjoyed it more. I cared a lot less about the people who didn't like me or didn't want to see it. Um, and it just made it, it translated in a way that it didn't before because I kept yeah. trying to like make it more than it was when then I, and then when I actually got more closer to my podcasting and the things I loved and saying stupid shit that was on my mind, that's when I got more people paying attention. And it's not that I want the attention, but it's more like you. I want to, if I can bring a moment of escape for someone like even listening to this interview that they're not thinking about something that's really bothering them or that's really horrible or whatever. I'm happy to provide that. And I also understand that if people ignore it because they're too busy being involved in the conversation or trying to do what's right or trying to make big moves. I also get that too. Like I think that we kind of need it all in this, this day and age. And I, I feel like, you know, all of the guests that I have booked on Shut Up Evan have been, for the most part, have been connections that I made through social media that I consider really authentic connections. Like these people are not my friends, but it's like I love nothing more than DMing with a celebrity. Um, and so I see this platform as an opportunity to, yes, there's all the bullshit and all the toxicity that certainly exists, but I think that there are a lot of like wonderful things about, and also just like, I will have so many conversations, like so many conversations with people. Cause I'm really into voice memos on Instagram and I will have random people that listen to the podcast that even today we talked about Ellen DeGeneres on today's show and I had all these voice memos from people being like, oh, you didn't talk about the Kevin Hart, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, let, let's, yes, let's speak on it. Yeah, like, yeah. I, let's talk about it now. Or even um, people will message me after something crazy will happen on The View and like people will message me. And it's like, I want to talk about The View. And so if you do too, you've come to the right place. That's how I feel about it. It's like, if, if we share our interests, and again, going back to like micro interests, it's like Buffy. It's like, I, I, I to me, it's like drag race is a lot less interesting of a subject to sort of like get super deep into just because everyone's watching it. But it's like when it comes to the view, when it comes to Survivor, when it comes to finding someone that's something that's a little bit more niche, obviously, like I realize these are not like small potatoes things, but that to me, it's like getting to like riff with a stranger about the view, like sign me up. Like, yes, let's do it. Yeah. I found that I've had more lasting conversations with people about a thing I'm passionate about than like, um, talking about like the bigger subjects, like the niche stuff tends to bring more people out. And like one of my podcasts started as me and a friend having an infatuated love of a game series. And then now since it's release, we have tons of people who want to talk about these games 
that I hadn't like I had no idea the community was what it was until you start talking about it. And that's more fun to me. Like the the highest praise I can have ever and like I feel like I've made it as a podcaster. Someone made fan art about a stupid thing I said on an episode of one of my podcasts that I haven't thought about since I said it. And to me, that's like as someone who's creating in a modern age, that is like the ultimate form of flattery. A hundred percent. Completely. Well, Evan, this has been a delight. Uh, it's so nice to be on this side of the interviewing chair. Um, um, I should have let you ask me a question like I ask questions on your on our show. <laughs> the day will come. The day will come. Um, but that said, um, before I have you do our sign off, tell people where they can find you and where they can find Shut Up Evan. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Evan Ross Katz. Um, and if you just hold down my story, you can hit mute um, because I tend to talk a lot. Um, and then you can find Shut Up Evan on anywhere that podcasts are available. It comes out every other Tuesday. Um, and we are in episode, we just released episode two today. So we've got 16 more great episodes coming out this season. And you can backlog and listen to all 18 episodes from season one. Yes. And you can also join Evan's Patreon, patreon.com slash Shut Up Evan, uh, where you get yes. behind the scenes stuff, you get videos, full format interviews before they're edited, all sorts of really great stuff. Um, and you support something that we're both really proud of you like how i just slid that pitch right yeah, in no there. i love it's like it's literally um it's like something i keep saying to myself it's like i i I'm, i hate uh, encouraging people I, I, it, this is a whole other thing but anyways like i just i i need to get better at messaging the patreon so anyway i appreciate you coming forward and helping yes please subscribe to the patreon but now i'm going to ask you to sign off the show so we have a saying on the show which is uh, music is life and life is good. That saying is born out of this idea. I used to do a music review show, but also this idea that if you're creating art, then life isn't that bad, even when you're going through harder times like we are now. Music is life and life is good. That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amans. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashchords.com or hit us up on Twitter at Crash Chords Web. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit weburlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs> <laughs>